Good morning. Great to see you guys. How are you? Good, good. And uh, those of you online, welcome to you as well. Uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors. I'm part of our preaching team. And I'm really, really glad that you're here with us today. Uh, today, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of John, and we're getting here to the end of the fourth chapter. And the, this end of the fourth chapter really marks a kind of bookend to this first section of the Gospel of John. John 1 had been a kind of prologue where John was uh, introducing all the major themes. And then in John 2, uh, Jesus did his first sign. He uh, turned water into wine at a wedding. It's pretty cool that we have a savior whose first miracle was just to make the party better, isn't it? I mean, that's just great. Uh, it's a preview of how kingdom, uh, life in the kingdom of God is a life of abundance and a life of joy. That was the first sign that he did. Well, now at the end of chapter four, Jesus does his second sign also in the same city. John two was in Cana at Galilee is where he turned water into wine. Now we're back in Cana in Galilee for this second sign. And so I just, at the outset here, I just want to nerd out for a little bit. Can I, I don't get to do this a lot. You know, I just try to go, let me just keep it simple for everybody. But every now and then I just have to be kind of a dork and a nerd and just dig into it. So can we do a little Bible nerdy uh, thing for just a moment? Okay, so here's what I want you to see is uh, John, I think, intends for us as he's writing this book, we've told you he's like a documentary filmmaker. He wants us to see this whole section from chapter two to chapter four as kind of one unit. And that's why I think he bookends this first sign and this second sign in such incredibly parallel ways. So uh, let me just point out five parallels of that first story and this last story as I nerd out for a moment. First, they were both third day miracles. The wedding in Cana happened on the third day. This story of uh, Jesus healing this official's son happens after two days he departed Galilee. Okay, hence third day. What's John doing there? He's trying to say, hey, something big is going to happen on the third day. Stay tuned. That's the first parallel. Second parallel is that both of those signs contain a rebuke at first to the person who asked. Right? Jesus' mother said, hey, they ran out of wine. He's like, what problem is that's not my problem? This guy says, hey, my son is uh, sick. And he goes, hey, you guys are all just after me because you want to see signs. So there's kind of an initial parallel there. A third parallel. In each case, Jesus performs the miracle at a distance, doing nothing but speaking the word, right? Jesus doesn't go back in the kitchen and mix up the water and turn it into wine. He just says, it's going to be fine. Fill the jars. In this miracle... The, the guy asking, hey, come, come visit my son. Come see my son. Jesus doesn't travel all that distance to go heal the son. He just says, go, he'll be fine. Jesus heals with his words. He, he works with his words. Fourth connection is that only the servants, while this is happening, seem to have the knowledge of what's really going on, right? The servants in John 2 were the ones who drawn the water. They understood what was happening with that miracle. In John 4, it's the servants of the man who've actually seen that the son is healed, and they come and meet him on the way. And then finally, each of these accounts concludes with a statement that some people, as a result of what happened, believed. In John 2, the disciples saw what was happened, that it manifested the glory of Jesus, and they believed. Here, the man himself believed in all his household. So that's going, isn't that just kind of neat? I don't know. I just like being a dork for a little bit, but that, that's kind of a, a, a cool kind of way that you see, okay, this whole unit is meant to be read together. Now, the question is, what's been the point of this whole unit? Well, the main ingredient of this whole unit is that we are to believe in Jesus, that we're to put our trust 
in Jesus. But what I want us to see today is that there's actually also been a secret ingredient kind of running throughout the whole discussion. Now I do, uh, almost every Saturday morning, I make breakfast for the family. I love to cook. It's a way to uh, just kind of relieve stress and get my mind off something. I feel like so much of my work, I don't know if it's ever finished, right? My job is to help conform us to the image of Jesus, which means my job is never done. But I can put a meal on a plate and go, it's done. I did something, right? So I like to cook. And so I like to cook breakfast. And uh, almost every Saturday morning, we'll make pancakes. And the big question for the, the family every week that they are trying to figure out is what's the secret ingredient? Right, the core ingredients are the same. The main ingredients are the same. But, but often, I'll put a secret ingredient in. You know, and they'll guess, oh, I think it's, is it orange zest? Yeah, you got it. Oh, is it cinnamon today? Oh, you got it, right? And, and there's these little things. And what's interesting with the secret ingredients is they're not so secret that you couldn't tell. But if you're paying attention, if you're tasting closely, you can figure it out. Well, the main ingredient in this whole section, as I said, is belief in Jesus. The secret ingredient, though, and the key question that's running through it is what's needed for faith in Jesus? And specifically, do we need to see signs and wonders and miracles in order to really believe. This is where some of you are at. This is where some of you watching today are at, is you have thought, maybe you've even actually prayed to God, God, I'll believe in you if you prove yourself to me. If I get this job, then God, I'll know you're real. If I get pregnant, God, then I'll know you're real. If he gets better, God, then I'll know you're real. God, prove yourself to me. And the striking thing about Jesus is that he is doing all of these signs so that we might believe. And yet what you see running through this whole thing is that he doesn't really want our faith to be in the signs and the miracles, but in him. So if I just go back through this whole story, you had the disciples at the wedding, right? They, they see the sign and they really believe. But in the very next story, which I won't put on the screen, but the very next story in John 2, the, the Jews in Jerusalem are actually coming to Jesus and going, show us a sign. We expect a sign. And Jesus is like, I'm not going to show you a sign other than to tell you I'm going to die and rise in three days. And they don't get it. And it says in there that, well, some people believe, but Jesus didn't really trust that they actually really believed. And then you get to John 3. And Nicodemus is the ruler of Israel, and you must be born again, and you got to believe in me. And he's like, I don't get it. And then you get to John 4, and in John 4, you get this incredible picture of faith where Jesus doesn't do any signs, and he didn't, he's not even doing it for the main people he came for, which was the Jews. But now in John 4, he's talking to the Samaritans. He doesn't do any miracles, and it says the Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony and because of what they heard from Jesus. So there they believe. They don't see any proof of it. That's the purest kind of faith. And now we get to this story, and it's a little bit confusing even in the first few verses of this story. Look at verse 43 of chapter 4. It says, after the two days he departed for Galilee. And now verses 44 and 45 feel like contradictions. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone the feast. Now, get this, Jesus is from Nazareth, which is a town in a region called Galilee, right? So I live in Queen Creek, 
which is in a region called Maricopa County. But Galilee is, is the, the region. And so it says in verse 44, Jesus is going to his hometown, to his home region, because nobody honored him there. And you go, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, yes, it does. Is Jesus on the honor quest? Oh, man, where are they going to pat me on the back the most? No. Jesus is prone to go to the people least likely to honor him. So he goes to Galilee. But then it says in verse 45, but they welcomed him. So you're like, well, wait, did they welcome him? I thought he said they were against him. But why do they welcome him? Look at this. For they had seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the feast. In other words, they kind of believe, but only because they've seen him do all this like David Blaine magician stuff. Is their faith real? Is your faith in Jesus or is it in the stuff you expect Jesus to do for you? That's the kind of question as we get to the end of this section. And so here we are asking this question, what does real faith look like? Where does it start? How does it grow? How does it deepen? And what role does God showing up in powerful ways play in that? So I want to look at three aspects of real faith that we see in this story. And the first one is this, that faith begins with need, not demands. Faith begins with need, not with demands. It says in verse 46, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, a few things we need to understand. A Galilee, again, is this region. There are two towns within Galilee that are mentioned in verse 46. There's Cana and there's Capernaum. These towns are about 25 miles apart. So Jesus is in Cana, but this guy in Capernaum, who it says is an official, that word uh, is the idea of he's a governmental official. We don't know really for sure. Was he Jewish or was he a Gentile? Uh, he perhaps was uh, working in Herod's court. We don't know, but he seems to be powerful because he has servants and he's important. And yet he's found that there's something he can't do, which is make his son healthy. His son was ill. His son was at the point of death. And so he's 25 miles away and he goes, I got to get to Jesus. Why does he think that? Because he's a dad. And when you're a parent, what will you do to help your kids when they need something. Anything. Sometimes we do stupid stuff. I remember a number of years ago, uh, my daughter, uh, Abby, it was her uh, birthday, and I made the mistake of saying, hey, how would you like me to decorate your cake? And I think what I meant was like, do you want chocolate frosting or vanilla frosting? Like white, white or brown? Like how do you want the cake to look, right? But she had lots of plans. Well, I want sprinkles here, and I want it to look like this, and maybe two layers, but the layers aren't exactly the same. One layer is a little smaller than the other, right? And I'm like, oh man, this was a bad move. And I think she was like four or five, right? So she had lots of opinions about cake making. And one of the things she wanted was she wanted peanut butter frosting in ribbons kind of around the edges. And when you're a parent, you do whatever it takes for your kid. Well, I found that it's very actually hard to find peanut butter frosting. You can't just find, like I went to Fry's and I went to Safeway and I went to, well, maybe at Costco they have like a vat of it, I don't know, like, and I went everywhere and I could not find peanut butter frosting until finally I got to Target. And at Target, they didn't have peanut butter frosting for sale, but they had a really big cupcake with lots of peanut butter frosting. And so I bought that and glommed it off and put it in the thing. And I made it because you do what it takes for your kids, right? 
Well, that's something dumb, like a birthday cake. This is something serious, right? What will you do for your kid who's sick? You'll fly to Cleveland Clinic. You'll try experimental treatments. You'll do anything. And that's where this guy is. So he makes a 25-mile walk. This important man, this ruler with servants who says people go and they go, right? This important guy walks 25 miles to ask a crazy request of a carpenter. Why? Because he's in need. When I pray for my non-Christian friends to meet Jesus, one of the things I pray for them is to experience pain. And some of you might be thinking, that sounds so mean. I thought we were supposed to be loving. Well, here's the thing I know, is that we often don't see our need until we have pain. And I don't want my friends to hurt, and I don't want them to suffer, but I want them to see their need. And you go, well, maybe you should pray for miracles. But the reality is, as you watch Jesus, there's lots of people who saw miracles and it didn't do anything. Miracles are not what create faith. Pain usually is. Pain gives you eyes to see who Jesus really is. The other thing that we need to see in this as faith begins with need and not demands, here's why, is because with demands, we stay in charge. But when we come with needs, we say, you're in charge. I'm dependent. Right, if you say, I'll never believe that Jesus is real unless this happens, what are you doing? You're, you're putting yourself as the authority. And so it's no wonder that Jesus is like, nope, not interested in doing that for you. This is not how this works. You don't say jump and I say how high. That's not what Jesus does. He goes, I'm the king, I'm the Lord. And so we need to be in a place of dependence, in a place of need. It says in verse 47, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, verse 48 is plural. And again, in English, this is difficult. We read the word you, and sometimes it's addressed to a person, buddy, and sometimes it's addressed to y'all, right? And here Jesus is saying, y'all, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. Right, so this guy has come down, there's surely a crowd, because there's always a crowd around Jesus, and he says, will you heal my son? And Jesus says, y'all don't believe unless I do signs and wonders for you. And look at his response. His response is one, of, again, of need. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. He's going, Jesus, I'm not in like a, this isn't a trick question about theology and signs and wonders. I, my kid's sick. Will you help? Are you in need? Listen, don't demand what Jesus must do, but by all means, ask him. Tell him. And you go, well, he already knows. Come to him with your need. Come to him with your hurt. Come to him with your request. What moves Jesus from like... Y'all aren't even serious about this. To, all right, is need. Are you coming needy? Or are you going, oh, it'll all be okay. It'll all be all right. Be honest with the Lord. Come to him with need. Faith begins with need, not with demand. Secondly, we see in this passage that faith takes Jesus at his word. 
Again, faith doesn't demand things of Jesus, but it listens to Jesus and then takes, it, takes him at his word. Verse 49, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. This is an amazing thing because what had the man been asking Jesus to do? Two times. Once in verse 47, once in verse 49. What did he specifically ask Jesus? Look at the, look at the book with me. What does he say? He asked him to come down and heal him, right? This is, again, the guy has traveled 25 miles. It probably took most of a day, if not multiple days, he gets there, and he's operating this assumption, Jesus has the power to heal, but in order to do it, he's got to come be in the room with him. So he's asking, come down, come down. And Jesus says to him, go, your son will live. And he believed him. And he went home and he went. Now think about the courage. Think about the faith of that. Right, the first thing I thought of when I was looking at this is going, he, that guy had to be walking home and being like, I'm going to get home without Jesus. And my wife is going to be like, you had one job. Get Jesus here. Like, what went wrong? Did you forget the one thing on the shopping list I gave you? Like, I'm prone to do. So he had to be thinking like, what is she going to say? Oh man, I hope this works. Because he's walking a long, 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 long way. But faith begins with taking Jesus at his word. Not with lording up over Jesus and saying, Jesus, if you're real, you must be like X, Y, or Z. But saying, no, you say this. Okay. Will you take Jesus at his word? Jesus says to you, he says to me, he says to us, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Will you take him at his word? He says he's close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Will you take him at his word? He says he's the vine and we're the branches. And apart from him, we can do nothing. Will you take him at his word? He says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to purify you from unrighteousness. Will you take him at his word? He promises that the good work that began in him will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. Will you take him at his word? See, we, we don't have to wonder what God would say to us. We have it here. Will we take him at his word? Will we believe him? Will we trust him? Will we follow him? Even when we haven't seen him do anything yet. And will we trust that he's good? Will we trust his heart? Will he trust his intention and his plans. Faith takes Jesus at his word. And the final thing we see in this passage is that faith strengthens as you see more of Jesus. So the idea of scripture is that Jesus graciously gives more to those who trust him. Right, sometimes we think, well, if you would just show me, then I'd trust you. And Jesus goes, that's not how this works. You trust me and then I'll show you more and you'll trust me even more. Look at how this plays out on the way home. Verse 51, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour 
when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. That's about one o'clock in Jewish time. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So, so get this. He's going, wait, 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 wait a minute. Hold on. When, when, when exactly did the fever break? When exactly did he, did he turn around? They're like, uh, one o'clock? He's like, that's when Jesus said, go, your son will live. Oh my goodness. He was, he was 25 miles away and he just said it and it happened. Who else just says things and they happen? Oh, wait. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He just says it and it happens. He must be more than a carpenter. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. See, Jesus gives him the sign. He just doesn't do it first. He says, trust me. And then you'll see more. See, Jesus is not anti-giving us signs, right? Even John's purpose of the book, he says, all these signs were written so that you'd believe in Jesus. When we get to the end of the book, after the resurrection, one of Jesus' own disciples is going to still be kind of doubting Thomas. And he's going to be going, ah, I don't know, unless I see the wounds. And Jesus isn't like, all right, everybody write this down, doubting Thomas, boo, cancel Thomas, you're the worst. That's not what he does. He goes, okay, touch my, touch my side, touch my hands. Jesus is not anti-signs. But Jesus wants us to take him at his word, and as we trust him, and as we follow him, we actually begin to see more of who he really is. Well, who is Jesus? Well, according to this whole section we've been in that started at the wedding and ends here in Cana again, who is Jesus? He's the giver of joy at the wedding by water into wine. He's the new temple where God meets his people. That's why he cleared out the temple in chapter two. He's the one who gives new birth and gives resurrection and speaks life into dry bones. That's what he told Nicodemus in chapter three. He's the savior of the world, which is what the Samaritans declared him to be in chapter four. And here, he's the giver of life from the dead. That's who Christ is. He is the one who speaks and we live. Actually, I, I want to nerd out again here as we come to the end. You got to see this. Three times in this text, in the Greek language, it says, your son lives. It's once in verse 50, go, your son will live. In verse 51, he told him that his son was recovering. The Greek word there is live. His son was living. Verse 53, your son will live. And again, John is planting a seed. The son will live. On the third day, the son will live. On the third day, the son will live. Believe him, and you'll see him work beyond your imagination. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the words that you speak to us in this book. And thank you for the promise that the son will live. God, thank you for how you give us a preview of it in this story. 
Thank you for how you reveal yourself to us. And God, we come to you right now asking that we could believe you, that we could take you at your word. God, there are ways we wanna see you work in this world. There are ways we wanna see people healed. There's people in this room wanting to get pregnant. There's people in this room wanting to get married. There's people in this room wanting to get whole. There's people in this room wanting all kinds of really great things. But God, help us to want you more than anything and to trust you that no matter what you give, you're good. We pray it in Christ's name.